Well, Thursday evening, I wonder how you are doing. I'd be very interested to know, actually. So, instead of telling me because, well, I'm not the Lord Jesus, I can't hear all of you at once, um, why don't you give me your thumbs? How are you feeling? Give us a thumb. The defining reality of our time. The defining reality of our time is that the living Lord who died for us, Jesus the Christ, is reigning at his right hand, his father's right hand in glory. He rules and extends his kingdom by sending and saving. That's four talks in 20 seconds. It would have saved a heck of a lot of time if I'd just done that, wouldn't it, on Monday? But friends, that's not all. That's not all. Because Jesus is coming back. Now you can see there on your outline, this has been the certain expectation of the Christian faith from the very beginning. It was proclaimed at Jesus' ascension. Acts chapter 1, the two messengers said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And so Jesus' disciples who heard that message, they announced Jesus' return from the very beginning. Peter, in Acts chapter 3, Repent therefore, he said, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is, Jesus, who must remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration that God announced long ago through his holy prophets. So the Lord Jesus must remain in heaven, Peter says, God's place, until it is time when God the Father will send him back to us. And there's evidence in the New Testament that suggests this expectation of Jesus' return was part of the very earliest Christian hope. At the very end of 1 Corinthians, in the third last verse, Paul writes, Our Lord, come. Literally, what he writes is the word Maranatha. Now, Paul's writing in Greek. That's what the New Testament was written. He's, he's writing in Greek. But Maranatha is an Aramaic expression. And you can see it written in Aramaic there on your page. But don't look a dweeb, okay? Aramaic reads from right to left. So don't think you're going to impress somebody by going, look, I could write Maranatha when you've actually written the word backwards. That would be dumb. Right. So you've got to read it from right to left. Well, Aramaic was the local language, right, spoken in Judea and Jerusalem. So here's the question. Why would Paul, writing in Greek to the people living in Greece, write an Aramaic expression? 
Well, presumably because it goes back to the very beginning of the Christian community in Judea and Jerusalem, which they would have, because they would have met together and spoken together and prayed together in Aramaic. So we have here a Christian saying that most likely goes back to the very earliest times of the Christian community. Come, Lord. It's a prayer. It's a cry. It's a hope, an expectation for Jesus' return. So the question tonight is, is that your prayer? Is that your longing? Your, your joy-filled hope? So I thought we could try a new response. You know, we've had a response this week. Uh, here's a new one. And it's actually drawn from the very end of the Bible, the Revelation, which sort of has the same sentiment as what we've just looked at there in Corinthians. And it's going to go like this. He's coming soon. And you're going to respond with, come Lord Jesus. He's coming soon. Come Lord Jesus. Friends, he's alive. Hallelujah. He's coming soon. Come Lord Jesus. Amen. So if you look really sleepy, I might try to energise you with that prayer. There we go. We'll see how we go. But friends, why do we look forward to Jesus' return? There's a simple reason, and it's this. We want to see, no, we want to experience the fulfilment of all of God's promises. We want to see and experience the fulfilment of all of God's promises. That's why we look forward to Jesus' return. Now, I hope and pray that as tonight we explore the richness of God's promises that will be fulfilled when Jesus returns, that frankly it blows you away, that it boggles your mind, that it thrills our hearts, because Christian hope does that. It's not an exercise in wishful thinking. It's not like daydreaming, oh, that you're the most popular person in the room. That's just wishful thinking. It's not daydreaming that you're going to represent Australia in chess or whatever else you daydream about. Christian hope is not daydreaming. Christian hope is a certain expectation of what God is going to do according to his promise. That's what it is. That's Christian hope. And there's at least two ways the New Testament speaks about what we're looking for. There are two different ways of saying the same thing. They're down there as the dot points on your page. One way of talking about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back is that the kingdom will be consummated, fulfilled, completed. First, um, what we're looking forward to here then is the consummation of the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. We're waiting for this kingdom to come in all its fullness and power in our own experience. We want to see everything placed under Jesus' feet. We want to see everything established under God's rule, right? That's what his kingdom's about, as he intends, for the good of all, for the good of all creation. That's what we want to see. Another way of talking about it is as final salvation. There on page uh, 38. Notice uh, the way the writer to the Hebrews puts this here. 
And just as it is appointed for mortals to die once and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus, when he appears, is not going to deal with our sins. He's done that already the first time at the cross. Jesus is going to appear to save those who are waiting for him. But hang on, you go, hasn't Jesus already saved us? Well, yes and no. Uh, George Caird, reflecting on this, sums up the New New Testament teaching on salvation with this sentence. He says, salvation in the New Testament is a threefold act of God. It's an accomplished fact, an experience continuing in the present, and a consummation still to come. And so I've got a little diagram there of those three tenses of salvation, if you like, with some references that you can chase up later. We have been saved through what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. We are being saved. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, there are only two groups of people in the world. As you look around, he says, there are those who are perishing and there are those who are being saved. It's as though everyone is on a trajectory. You're on an arrow and it's headed in only one of two directions. You're one of those who are perishing and headed to condemnation and destruction. Or you're one of those who, by God's grace, are being saved and are headed to final salvation. Now, there's a reality moment for you. Every single person is on one of those two trajectories. They're perishing or they're being saved. See, it's not just that we're all neutral with some sort of final separation to come at some point in the future. Even now, we are on a trajectory We are perishing or being saved. And that points us then to the third tense that you saw there in Hebrews 9. When Jesus appears again, we will finally and completely be saved through him from the final judgment. So that's a bit of an overview. That's that's some ways the New Testament talks about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Let's now fill that out a little bit. Point C, what will Jesus' return involve? And there's lots to actually look at here, and I'm going to skate over some sections. I almost missed them out entirely, but you've got the passages there. You can get a bit of a bigger picture. Tomorrow in review groups, you can explore it a bit more thoroughly. But let's look at some of these. What will Jesus' return involve? First of all, it'll mean Jesus' glory revealed and shared. So Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul writes, We wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. On that final day, Jesus is going to be revealed in all his resurrected and ascended glory. As we looked at last night when we read John's vision of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, it will be mighty when his glory is manifest, when it's revealed. But the astounding thing, and um, this is what we skipped over last night, 
is that on that final day, it won't just be the revealing of Jesus' glory alone. It will actually be the revealing with him of those who are in him. So have a look at Colossians 3. When Christ who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. See, the point is that his trajectory becomes ours. As we saw last night, Jesus goes through suffering to glory. And for all of us who are united to Jesus in the spirit, by faith, what happened to him will happen to us. Through suffering to glory. Now, I... What will that mean? I mean? What will that look like? What will that be like? I mean, you sort of start thinking about it. and The short answer is, I don't, we're just not told thoroughly what that will look like. I don't think it probably means that you'll be there with your face shining like the sun with a huge sword coming out of your mouth. Because that's, book of Revelation, right? that's apocalyptic imagery to start with. And secondly, he's the exalted son of man, not us. But when he's revealed, it says, we will be revealed with him in glory. I assume even that it won't be our own glory. It won't be suddenly like, man, I am just full of rowing glory. Whatever that would be. I assume actually, because I am united to Jesus by his spirit, through faith, And he is my representative that I get to participate in his glory in some way. Such is the great grace of God. But that day that when Jesus is revealed, it will also be, point two there, the day of ultimate disclosure. We've got two passages there, but let's just look at the second one. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. So what were we learning here? Well, the day of Jesus' return will be a day of almighty disclosure. The secrets of our hearts will be revealed. Now, that is a confronting prospect. So when I say every secret will be revealed, do you have some secrets that spring to mind that you'd rather not have disclosed? There will be, according to the scriptures, no hiding on that day. No wiggle room. No opportunity for fast talking, excuse making. No slipping out to the bathroom. Because, frankly, uh, if the purposes of your heart are laid bare, what point is there in talking? It is a confronting prospect. 
And it leads into the next aspect of Jesus' return, Jesus the judge and saviour. This is another central truth about Jesus, that he will judge the living and the dead. And again, it goes back to Jesus' own claim about himself. Look at the first verse there in that passage, John 5, 22. The Father judges no one, says Jesus, but has given all judgment to the Son. All judgment given to Jesus. Then jump down to verse 27, the last uh, verse in that passage. Jesus says again, and he has given him, that is, he the Father has given the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Jesus again identifies himself with that figure from Daniel 7, the Son of Man, to explain that he's been given all this authority to judge by his heavenly Father. And so because Jesus claimed it, because he was vindicated in his resurrection, the apostles taught this truth from the beginning. And speaking for the apostles, Peter there in Acts 10 verse 39 says this, he says, we are witnesses to all that Jesus did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as eyewitnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us. What did Jesus command them to do? He commanded us, says Peter, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead. So the command to proclaim Jesus as the judge came from the resurrected Jesus himself to the apostles. And it's not a peripheral message that Jesus will be our judge. In fact, Paul says that it's part and parcel of the gospel. Romans 2.16, On that day when, according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. So central is this truth that Jesus will be the judge that Paul says, it's just part and parcel of my gospel. It's what I proclaim. Jesus is the judge and he will judge the secret thoughts of all. And no one escapes this judgment. Paul again in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for all of us, he says, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what's been done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, how does that sit with you? <laughs> that we will all bef appear before the judgment seat of Jesus. That's part of what his return will involve. Well, what's at stake in this judgment? And um, this little section here of these notes that you've got in your hands, this is the darkest section of this conference. Because this is the saddest truth that Jesus reveals. The saddest reality that he shares with us. This is actually what we're reading here. This is much sadder than Jesus' death. 
Because Jesus' death, as terrible, as, as, as incomprehensibly immoral as it was, at least it was salvation, which is why as Christians we call it Good Friday. But here, in this bit, there is very little light. Because here Jesus reveals the consequences of rejecting him. Jesus in John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever disobeys the Son will not see life but must endure God's wrath. It's a terrifying prospect. Not just to imagine it, if you can, for yourself, but to contemplate it for anyone you know, for anyone you love. That's why it said you can only contemplate hell with tears. Or maybe just an awful numbness. Or maybe crying out to God for mercy. Jesus called this, this experience of God's wrath, hell. Jesus in Luke 12. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Elsewhere, Jesus is very clear on the reality of hell. As I shared in question time the other night, Jesus' advice to you is that when it comes to hell, if you have a choice between hell or plucking out your eye, if you had to pick, he says, line up to pluck out your eye rather than go there. And he says, if you have a choice between hell and and choosing to cut off your hand, then please cut off your hand. You don't want to go to hell. How astounding it is that he chose to go there for us, given those warnings. Well, for us, thankfully, we are not yet at that point of utter darkness. Not here, tonight. We are not at that point of utter darkness. What I mean is that we have not yet appeared before the judgment seat of Jesus. For us, there is still time. There's still the wonderful light of salvation open to us in Christ because Jesus is saviour as well as judge. And that is the great gospel of God, the great good news of God, that Jesus Christ is Lord, which means he's ruling and saving until he returns. There is great, great grace and rescue available for all people in Christ by his death, through his mighty sacrifice by God's awesome grace. Such that now, what that means is there is no condemnation 
for those who are in Jesus. Despite what we deserve, despite what our life and sins and attitude have earned, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the wonderful implication of the gospel of Jesus, that those who put their faith in him in sheer undeserved mercy and grace are rescued, delivered. They have their exodus through Jesus the Passover lamb. But what we need to be mindful of here is actually the New Testament teaches us that we don't have endless amounts of time up our sleeve with these realities. In fact, the message in the New Testament is that judgment is ready to take place right now. So in James chapter 5, verse 9, the end of that verse, James says, see, the judge is standing at the door. He's not a thousand miles away. He's standing at the door. Or in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, they will have to give an accounting to him who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, friends, we need to not shy away from this truth. As uncomfortable and as, un- as confronting as it is, judgment is coming with the return of Jesus. Hell is what any who won't turn to Jesus are facing. Jesus, our Saviour, holds our forgiveness and salvation and no condemnation for anyone who would come to him in repentance and faith. But he stands ready at the door, ready to begin judgment. He stands ready and are you ready to meet him? Will you meet him as your judge? Or will you praise him as your Saviour when you see him? face to face. I mentioned before that Jesus' return will bring for those in Christ our final salvation. It will bring our final salvation. So let's keep going. What will that look like? What will that look like? Now, key here is that uh, Jesus' return will actually signify, and this, this does blow my mind when I think about it, it signifies the final defeat of God's enemies, including death itself, and radical personal transformation. Death itself is going to be defeated when Jesus comes back. In our experience, your death will be overcome as he raises you from the grave by the power of his spirit. In the second passage there on your page, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23, for as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So when Jesus comes, it's going to mean the resurrection of all those who are in him, not a resuscitation. It will be a thoroughgoing transformation into a new physical flesh and blood body, just like Jesus' resurrected body. So you can see there the little cutesy diagram. We start in Adam. We are all in Adam. But by mercy and grace through faith in Christ, we can be in Christ. Now we're going to sort of 
fill in the crosses and the ticks and they correspond to each other. But you've got to look at these next two passages, try and work out what are the crosses and what are the ticks. What do we go from and what do we go to when Jesus returns in this transformation? So I'll read it out. See if you can pick four of each. See if you can do it. Listen, I will tell you a mystery, writes Paul. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye as the last, uh, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So I'll give you some help here, right? You probably didn't get any, did you? But that's okay. Here we go. Uh, What's it like being in Adam? We die. There's one. What happens correspondingly in Christ? Well, you could put change, but what he's saying there is those who are dead will live and those who haven't yet died, they still will go through that same transformation. So I'd, I'd just put victory, actually, victory and life. That's what happens, victory and life. What's it like being in Adam? It's a perishable body. That's what we're in, a perishable body. But our new body will be imperishable. What's it like being an Adam? It's having a mortal body. What's it like being in Christ? It's we will have an immortal body. Not an immortal soul, an immortal body. And then there's one more pair that you can pick, and it's from the next passage, Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, writes Paul, and it is from there we're expecting a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that's what it's like being in Adam, having a, a body of humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. It's just worth reflecting just for a moment on the significance of what's being promised here. When Jesus returns, all those who in him will be raised to life immortal. It's the very end and overturning of death. Now think for a moment in terms of just your your, your understanding of what God's revealed through the scriptures. When did death come into the world? Wow, that came in all the way right back at the beginning. Genesis 3. Yeah. So what happens on that final day when Jesus comes in his glory and the dead are raised? It's the overturning of everything that came from the fall in Genesis 3. God has put his whole creation back on track. It's like he's pressed the restart button. And, and all of biblical history, from Genesis 3 all the way through, it's all been driving towards that moment when God renews, recaptures, reclaims, reasserts all of his good intentions for all of his creation. 
and it all happens then. That'll be amazing. And we will be transformed. New flesh and blood bodies. Just like Jesus' resurrected body. And there's so much more we could say. And I'm not even going to talk about these next ones. It'll, that day of Jesus coming back, we'll be seeing him face to face. Now we live by faith, by trust. Then we will live by sight. We will see the Lord Jesus face to face. How awesome, how exciting, how cool, how wonderful will that be? You will see him. The Bible describes that final day as the wedding feast of the Lamb. Is there any celebration more glorious, more fun, more fantastic than a wedding celebration? And, and that day when Jesus returns is the wedding celebration for him. He's getting married, you say? I didn't know that. Who's he getting married to? I don't think Jesus should get married. He's marrying us. Oh, that's a bit we what? The church, the people he died for, because he loves her and has purified her for himself. It's the great day of reunion, the great day where, where Jesus meets his bride, his people, and there is a celebration like none other. And if that's not sounding good enough, you can then read on. Romans 8. It, that day is not just the renewal of us. It is going to be the renewal of the whole of creation. In fact, Paul says in Romans 8 that the whole of the creation is groaning because it wants to share in the glory of the children of God. That's What? All of creation wants to share in the glory that God is going to grant to his children. Somehow, when we share in the glory of Christ, all of creation is going to be renewed. All those fallen parts of creation will be done away with. All of creation renewed. And then finally, point eight there from 1 Corinthians 15 when all these things, all these things have happened at Jesus' return, then Jesus, the King, the reigning one, he reigns on forever, right? No, actually. No. He takes all of that kingdom and he gives it back to his Father. So that God might be all in all. That's just sort of a, a brief, just sort of skim overview. Of what will it mean when the Lord Jesus returns, when he is revealed, when he is manifest, when he comes again? Well, when? Point D, about times and places. When's all this going to happen? Sounds good. Sounds pretty fantastic. If what you're saying is right, all of human history has been looking for that moment. When's it going to happen? 
Well, we just don't know. So Jesus says in Matthew 24, but about that day and hour, no one knows. Nor the angels in heaven, nor the Son, meaning himself, only the Father. Only the Father. So, how should we respond to that? Look what he says. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then he gives a little parable. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Yeah, okay. Got that. Therefore, he says, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Jesus, in his teaching, is so weird. I mean... Why would you say, yes, I'm going to come like a thief? Thieves aren't good. You don't go, hey, thief. Thieves are bad. And he's saying, yeah, the Son of Man's going to come like a thief in the night. And I, it must have grabbed people. It must be, it's a very arresting sort of image because you can see Paul using the image, and I assume it comes straight from Jesus. For you yourselves know, he says, very well, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We don't know when. We don't know when. And it could be any time, which is right, right? Because the judge is standing at the door. He is ready. Now, you have to say, well, he has been taken a long time, 2,000 years. That's a while. Why is he taken so long? And the answer is a wonderful answer. The reason Jesus the judge has not walked in the door, the reason he hasn't banged his whatever that little hammer thing judges have on that little thing, whatever they bang it on, the reason he hasn't done that to start proceedings, why? It's for only one reason. He's being patient with you. So 2 Peter chapter 3, first of all, he says, you must understand this, that in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He, that person could have joined the atheist society, like they've just got that scoffing sense just right there. Peter writes, they deliberately ignore this fact. That by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water through which the world of that time was deluged with water and perished. That is, God did it with a word. Creation and judgment. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the godless. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's why Jesus hasn't returned 
because he's being patient with us and wants everyone, not just here tonight, not just at Sydney Uni, everyone. We're talking those maps of the world. We saw the Lord wants everyone to come to perish. He doesn't want a single person to perish. So he's being patient. He's waiting. But the Father has set a day. He won't wait forever. But the only reason we are still here and not in glory is because Jesus longs for people to come to faith and salvation in him. That is it. No other reason. So, how do we live in the light of Jesus' return? Now, I have six ways that the New Testament tells us to live. Because, you know, this is great going through all this stuff and filling our heads with all sorts of Bible. But at the end of the day, it needs to affect your life. Someone once said, theology without application is heresy. Theology without application, it is heresy because your knowledge of God must transform your life, how you live, how you see the world, yes, what you believe to be true and how you live. So we've got all this wonderful truth about what's coming, but if that doesn't change how you live now, what good is that? That's entirely as useless as many mathematical things that I once knew and I've now thankfully forgotten. So I have six ways that the New Testament tells us to live in the light of Jesus' return and I tried to make them all start with the letter P because apparently that's what preachers are meant to do, pick letters and try to get words to fit with them. But I couldn't do it. So I ended up with five P's and one L. So we'll go with that. Let's do the L. Here's the first one. How do we live in the light of Jesus' return? We live with longing. With longing. Paul in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8. From now on there is reserved for me, writes Timothy, writes Paul, sorry, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed. For his appearing. The way Paul uses there, longing for Jesus appearing is actually a synonym for being a Christian. He actually says, to all, he could have said, to all Christians, to all who are in Christ, but he said, to all who long for his appearing. To be a Christian is to long for his appearing. It characterizes and identifies Jesus' followers. We long for his appearing. We say, he is coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. He is coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. We long for his appearing. We wait for him eagerly, the New Testament says. And the reason that longing characterizes Jesus' followers is that faith in Jesus and hope in Jesus are intimately bound up with each other. We entrust ourselves in faith 
to the one who has already come and who said he will come again. So our faith is connected to our hope because he said he's coming back and I trust him. I believe him. So longing for Jesus appearing is actually an outflow, an expression of your faith, your trust in him. And here's why longing for Jesus' return matters. Because it keeps you in touch with reality. Longing for Jesus' return keeps you in touch with reality. It is a great tragedy that as we live our lives as followers of Jesus, we don't lift our eyes and see the great promise of his return and all of that will mean. We just don't lift our eyes and look there. So instead of that great day being our hope, we put our hope in things that are pale and often vain in comparison. We put our hope, our future confidence in our relationships. We put it in having our hope or our confidence in having an impressive CV or in a career path or in getting married or in the approval of others or in attaining a better life than the one I grew up with or in accruing material comforts. That's our hope. That's what we're hoping our future is secure in these things. You see the tragedy of that. We're followers of Jesus and we've forgotten the reality that Jesus, our Saviour, reigns and that he's coming back soon. Of course we need to get on with relationships. We need to get on with a job and making a living. We need to get on with our studies. But our hope is in him and his return. Do you long for Jesus appearing? Do you long for it? Some of you, I'm sure, are saying, oh, you bet. Man, that is the deep cry of my heart. Come, Lord Jesus. And if that's you, then be assured. He's coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. But some of you are sitting here going, okay, I'll be honest, I believe he's coming back, but there's not much longing going on. This talk of eagerly waiting, of longing, it's not me, it's not my experience. And that can be a bit unsettling. Uh, You can feel a bit like, well, okay, those people who've caught this deep cry, this deep longing for Jesus, they've obviously got so much more of God than what I've got. Somehow it's like I've got a more limited spirit experience than they do. And that can be a bit distancing and distressing at times. So I've just got a few little thoughts on this. First of all, just recognise God has made us all different. Some people are more visual. Some people are more verbal. Some people are more mechanical. I mean, in the way you think rather than the way you sort of move. Um, Some people are more mechanical in the way they think. Some people are more mushy in the way they think. Some of us are more affected. We're more emotional in our reactions to situations and truths and, and to life itself. Others are more steady. We're not unaffected. You know, as the saying goes, still waters. They tend to run deep, actually. And so when we're moved, it's deep. (laughs) It's forceful. It has gravity. 
but just different. And it's perfectly fine to be the person God has created you to be with either personality. Both types of people long for Jesus. We, we just experience it a bit differently. For some, their heart cries out. And for the others, you know, it goes more like this. You know, when I think about how different it will be when Jesus appears, I reckon the sooner it comes, the better. I think, I reckon, like it's, it's going on up here, but it's real. It's just different. So both are longing for Jesus' return. Both are eagerly waiting. It's not about how you experience that longing, but that you have an eagerness for that day to come. It's about having a clear grasp of that future God's promised in Jesus and letting that be your hope, nothing else. The second thing just to say here is we know that it's the Spirit's work in you to grow you in your love and passion and zeal for God. But two important truths about the Spirit's work. First of all, the Spirit usually works through the Word. He points you to Jesus who you meet in his Word. I mean, you may encounter that Word through the words of a song. You may encounter that Word about Jesus through reading your Bible or through listening to a talk, through going to a Bible study, through just talking with a Christian friend, or even just as the truths of Jesus as revealed in Scripture just come into your mind in your own prayers or in your own reflections or while driving. I remember once I was driving to Melbourne with all the kids in the car one day, 11 hours, go hard, 4.30 in the morning, you're there. Anyway, that was too much detail. <laughs> we were driving somewhere past Canberra the kids are listening to Colin Buchanan, who writes children's songs. And as I'm driving through those fields, you know, brown fields, because it's Australia, driving through those fields, Colin sings something, and it just, bang, you know, just, it was a profound, like just, the Lord just worked through that song, that kid's song, man, and just... It was his truth, though, and it just... And I thought about that for the next 300 Ks. <laughs> and actually, months and months afterwards. The Spirit points us to Jesus through the Word, however that Word comes to us. But the second truth about the Spirit's work is that it's distinct, but it's not separate from our own work. So sometimes the Spirit might bring a, a moment of great insight or clarity or joy or tearful repentance or resolve, but often the way the Spirit of God does his long-term work of transformation in your life, of turning you into more and more the likeness of Jesus, he does that in and with your work. It's hard to separate separate out he, what he's doing from what you're doing because he works in and through, like hand and glove, I think. We work with all his energy. We cultivate his fruit in our life. So when it comes to longing, you say, I don't, I don't feel the longing. I, don't just sit back passively and complain. Where's the longing? 
in this in in the power of the spirit cultivate a faith and hope filled longing for Jesus return in your heart how do i do that how do i cultivate that well I reflect on the truths revealed in the word just reflect on the tragedy of our fallen condition notice the fallenness of this world around you reflect on god's determination to make it right as revealed in the scriptures reflect on the fact that if he thinks this is really important then maybe it needs to be really important for you too consider what the scriptures say how good it will be when jesus returns for you for this world for the people you love let that perspective that truth let let it shape you let it shape your thinking let it shape the way you see the world let it shape let's start to inform your prayers try praying once a day every day for a month about the return of jesus turn it over in your mind in the power of the spirit let the word fill your mind and shape your heart Well, that's the L. Why don't we stand up, stretch for a couple of minutes, and then we'll get to the five piece. We're on page 44. We're on page 44. Okay, now... Two people came up to me and gave me the same P word to replace longing with. Oh. Well, if you don't can't guess what it is, then you'll have to talk to an English student. That's what I was told. The, the, the suggestion was pining. Yeah. I, anyway, I'm I'm going to stick with longing. I have secret longing. Okay. Now, just as we get underway, uh, there will be a question time tonight. Very soon after this session, uh, we'll be down in the conference room at the end. And Andrew and Lubbock, Andrew Lubbock and I are both going to be there. And so you can direct questions at either one of us. And I reserve the right that if there's any question that I really don't know the answer to, I'm just going to ask Andrew to do it. Okay, how are we going to live in the light of Jesus' return? Longing. Here come five Ps. P1, patience. Patience. We long for Jesus' return, but we do it with patience. James chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. 
The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. And then it seems like James understands that that might be a bit of a disappointing message. He's saying, you've just got to be patient. Because then he says, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, that's a pretty logical message. If we have to wait, then let's be patient about it. But in the next verse, James explains why it's important to be patient. In verse 9, which is not there in your book, he talks about judgment. That's where that verse comes from. The judge is standing at the door, he says. So his message is, don't give up living a godly life. Don't give up living a godly life just because Jesus hasn't returned because patience plays into purity, which is the next P, purity. This is probably the most common application in the New Testament given to the return of Jesus. Live pure lives because Jesus is coming. Live a life of faith-filled obedience to him. Jump down to the second passage on your page, Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. He it is who gave himself for us so that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. Let's just have a little look at that. Paul encourages Titus to look backwards and forwards. He says, look back to Jesus' death and Jesus' teaching. Verses 11 and 13, he says, The grace of God, meaning Jesus, has appeared, bringing salvation to all and training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions. That, I, I think that's Jesus' teaching, instruction on how to live. But even more fundamentally, verse 14 Jesus it is who gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own. We look back to Jesus' death as the moment that defines who we are in the present. His death then shapes how I live now. But also Paul looks forward. Verse 12. We are to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives now as we wait for the hope of the revealing, the manifestation of our Saviour Jesus. So the Christian life is lived every day looking back to Jesus' death and his resurrection because that secured your salvation, that defines who you are in Christ and looking forward to Jesus' return and your revealing with him in glory. You look back and you look forward. In light of those two wonderful realities... We live a self-controlled, upright and godly life now. The life you've been called to, the life you've been saved for. So when you get up tomorrow morning and 
bleary-eyed. You get to the bathroom and you look. I just realised the failure of this example because the guys probably don't bother to look in the mirror, do they? (laughs) Try to remember tomorrow to look in the mirror. When you get up and you look in that mirror, remind yourself, I have been redeemed and purified. I have been. Thank you, Jesus. I will be revealed with him in glory. Thank you, Jesus. And so I'm going to live today in the light of those two realities. I have been redeemed and purified. I will be revealed with him in glory. And now I'm going to live with his grace and power. Well, let's jump down to the next P. P3, proclaiming. Sounds like there's bingo going on out there. (laughs) You've all got your bets on what the P's are. Uh, You won't get the one that's the purple people leader, but that's okay. I'll I'll keep that in the bag for later. At the end of Paul's very, uh, at the end of Paul's life, the very end of his life, knowing that he's no longer for this world, Paul writes to Timothy, the letter we have is to Timothy, his long-term younger co-worker, and this is what Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 4, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent, whether the time is favourable or unfavourable. Convince, rebuke and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. This is a really serious moment for Paul and for Timothy. You see it there at the end of verse 1. I solemnly urge you. Paul is leaning forward here in his letter. He's emphatic. That's the, here's the thing, Timothy. It's that moment. And what he says is, in view of Jesus appearing and his kingdom, where he's going to appear as judge of all, he says, proclaim the message. Now, we saw last night that Jesus is today, right now, the reigning saviour. His present rule is a dynamic rule. He's sending and he's saving. So that's why we want that message of Jesus to get out there. Well, this passage gives you even more incentive, even more. It's not just in light of Jesus' present mission to save that we want to proclaim the message. We do it as well in the light of the coming judgment of Jesus. Because only through believing this gospel about Jesus can people be saved from the judgment they will face before him. So they need to hear it. That's why Paul's so insistent and determined I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. And then he goes on, be persistent. Don't give up. Don't give it a rest. Be persistent, whether the time is favourable or unfavourable, whether it's comfortable for you or whether it's uncomfortable for you, whether it's an easy environment or it's a difficult environment, whether they're eager to hear or whether they deride you because of it. Be persistent. Convince rebuke, encourage with the utmost patience 
in teaching. Now, I hope that's actually what we've been doing here this week. Because there is no other way to salvation through faith in this person, Jesus, whom we proclaim by his grace. But a question, does this passage mean that you need to proclaim the message? Is God asking you here in this passage of his word to convince, rebuke, encourage others with utmost patience in teaching? The answer is maybe and yes. Maybe in the sense that Paul is speaking to Titus, who is what we'd call in vocational ministry, right? Titus is Paul's delegate, chosen delegate, left on Crete to appoint elders in every town, a teacher of God's people. So I I would say to you, if you are in ministry leadership, if you're a part-time youth minister, if you're a staff worker, if you're a missionary, if you're a church worker then this is God's clear word to you and to me. Proclaim the message persistently in all seasons. And frankly, if you think you'd like to be a pastor one day or a church planter or a church worker or a misho or a preacher or a children's minister or a chaplain at a school or a prison or a hospital or a university staff worker, then this is what God will want you to do, to proclaim the word like this. Don't pretend it would be otherwise. And everyone else goes, what a relief. That's not me, so I was feeling pretty uncomfortable there for a moment. Well, that's where I say, well, the answer is yes. This passage does definitely apply to you. Like this. So we're all told in the New Testament to be ready to give an account for the hope that we have in Jesus. Everyone. You need to be able to speak about your hope in Jesus, what he has done, what he is doing, what he will do. Why do you have this faith in Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to be able to answer those questions. And if you can't, you need to get some help. Do EU's Leading People to Christ course this semester at the, in the EU Equip program, Monday afternoons, There's no excuses here because the Bible clearly says it's an expectation on all of us to be able to give an answer for the hope that you have in Jesus. And you can see from this passage that there is a priority, there is an urgency to proclaiming this message of Jesus in light of his return. And that priority has to be lived out by us together as God's people at church, on campus, So you might never be the one to stand up in front of others and proclaim Jesus publicly. But I tell you what, if you don't invite people along 
when we together are trying to proclaim Jesus on campus or to church? How are they ever going to hear? See, it's no use saying, okay, I will give an answer for the hope that I have in Jesus if they ask me. But I'm never going to say anything that might vaguely suggest I actually think my faith is relevant for them. I'm never going to invite them to a mission event. I'm never going to ask them to come along to church with me. Well, if you're not going to do any of those things, if you're not going to step out a little bit of this, how are they ever going to even think about asking you about Jesus? Because they've read your mind by ESP? Because they've seen it in your eyes? Friends, we need to be bold. The time is short. Jesus is coming soon with the glory of his kingdom and the terror of final judgment. We need to pray for boldness from the Holy Spirit so we can speak the name of Jesus to those who are perishing. Because whether the time is favourable or unfavourable, they need to know him and his grace. And we will never know in whom the Lord is working, unless in boldness we step out and actually talk about him. Tell them that we think they really need to know about this Jesus. Invite them along. Ask if they'll come to church with you. Invite them to Club Veg at the end of the year or to NTE or to... You've got to do something. You can't just sit there and do nothing. Now, I'll be honest. This is a challenge for me, and I mean personally. The scariest times of evangelism for me are when I'm standing at the school gate picking up my kids and I'm chatting to other dads who I don't know really well and they don't really know me very well. That's the scary moment. Or when I meet a neighbour in the park behind our house and we're just chatting. Well, I invite them to church that Sunday. See, it's much easier actually to preach Jesus to a crowd. For me, it's less personally confronting. That's my struggle. And I need to heed the word of God here tonight. Proclaim the message at the school gate, in the park. I need to step out in spirit boldness, invite them to church. And here's a little tip. The more I pray for them, the more I pray that they might come to know Jesus, the more I do that, the easier it is. So if you, if you feel timid, start with prayer. Pray for them and pray for yourself. Well, our fourth P. What does it look like to live in the light of Jesus' return? It looks like perseverance. 
1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. In this you rejoice, writes Peter, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials. So that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's talking about persevering in faith in Jesus in the midst of suffering. And that's, that's never easy. And the suffering I think he's talking about here is suffering for being a follower of Jesus. That's not ever going to be easy. But we persevere because we know that it is in the crucible of persecution and suffering that the genuineness of our faith is revealed. Are we going to persevere in faith or are we going to give up? But we persevere because we know that at the end, when Jesus is revealed, there'll be praise and glory and honour. Not for us particularly, I think, but for him whose name we have borne through that suffering. But what will help you keep on persevering? The answer is the Lord will. So you can be, our final P, positive. (laughs) You all lost. No one got it. See, as we reach the end of this talk now, there is a great danger. There's a great danger over what I've been saying tonight, especially in this last part since the break. The great danger is that you think then that this is all about what you have to do in the light of Jesus' return. Because if we stop with that, that's only half the story. Actually, it's not half the story. It's actually a terrible denial and corruption of the story if you stop there. Because if we preach, you have to do, 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 and we stop like that, then we communicate that following Jesus is by sheer human work. That's not grace. The truth is much more wonderful and it's much more liberating and it's much more empowering than that. Because the truth is that it is God himself who empowers you to live this light of faith in Jesus while you wait for his return. Listen to what Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8 and friends, be encouraged. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, he, God the Father, will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God redeems us to be a holy people. God tells us how to live as his holy people and God empowers us by his spirit to be that holy people. Yes, there are times when you will stuff up, sometimes mightily, sometimes terribly, awfully, sometimes publicly, often privately. But by God's enabling of you to repent, to receive and rejoice in his forgiveness and to change. See, God does not ask us to do anything that he will not empower us to do. The life of a follower of Jesus is grace, grace, grace. 
Grace from start to glorious finish. And he will also strengthen you so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who is Jesus? Jesus is the coming one. The coming one. Revelation chapter 22, the one who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Friends, he's coming soon. Amen. So the question then tonight is this, will you put your hope in him? Will you extricate your hope from whatever else you have put it in? Take it out of those things and put your hope in him. Will you let his reality, that he is coming soon, will you let that be your reality? Will you live by that truth? Will you let it shape and change you? Your priorities, your plans, your thoughts, your, your hope. Well, let's pray. Paul prayed this blessing for the Christians at Rome from Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit within us, Fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you so that our hearts may overflow with the hope that longs for the return of your Son, our Lord Jesus, in whom all of your promises find their yes. Strengthen us, Father, to wait patiently, to live in purity, to proclaim Jesus persistently, to persevere faithfully in confidence that you are the one who is powerfully and faithfully at work in us. Lord Jesus, we know that you are coming soon. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.